Good morning to you. Do you know, over the last couple of months during this uh, pandemic uh, time, crisis, if you were to turn on the news and watch, there were always, most journalists will use this particular word to describe about this situation. You know what word that is? And the word is unprecedented. Unprecedented. And of course, uh, uh, it is the word in the media now and uh, to describe the current situation that we are all going through. But I think uh, that word can rightly describe about the ten plagues, uh, unprecedented. And out of the ten plagues that happened in the past, out of the ten, did you know there's seven of them mentioned in the book of Revelation that we uh, will experience that during the tribulation time in the future. Seven out of the ten plagues uh, also happening in the future. So this morning, uh, what I want to do is to go through uh, the text from chapter 7, verse 14 to the end of chapter 10. There are 107 verses there, nine plagues. I'll leave the tenth one to uh, Pastor Caroline to tie in together with the Passover. 107 verses, it is impossible for me to read through uh, that, and I hope that you had the opportunity to read through in advance. What I want to do at the start is just briefly uh, mention about the night plague. The night plague, and I'll just read a few verses. I, just, I don't want to spend more than five minutes, and then I'll give you four explanations. Uh, of course, my focus will be the final point, the fourth point. Uh, and a biblical explanation of this uh, plague. So the first one uh, is water to blood. Water to blood. Uh, the first plague is turning water to blood. And that is in Exodus chapter 7, verse 17 to 18. I just want to read those two verses. It's longer than that, but I just want to highlight the, the main one so that I don't commit the sin of, sin of assumption. You know, Pastor, we always commit the sin of assumption, assuming that people know or we assume that people don't know. So I just want to make sure, just few verses. Uh, water to blood in verse 17 and 18. This is what the Lord says, By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. So that's the first plague. And the second plague is frogs. And I want to read from chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. Frogs, chapter 8, 1 to 4. The Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. You realize that this phrase is going to repeat over and over again. Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will come up on you and your people and all your officials. Everywhere there are frogs. And the third plague is the lies or necks. Uh, I want to read from chapter 8, verses 16 to 17. Lies. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become nets. 
They did this, and when Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the ground, nets came on people and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became nets. Ooh, the thought of it just... The fourth plague, the flies or wild animals. And that is in chapter 8, 20, the second part of verse 20 and 21. This is what the Lord said, Let my people go so that they may worship me. As you can see, it repeat again. The purpose of deliverance is so that they will worship God. So it's not freedom from, but freedom for. And then verse 21, If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies. Even the ground will be covered with them. No need carpet. Plague number five is the pestilence of livestock. That is in Exodus chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. Exodus 9, 1 to 3, the Lord said to Moses again, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of Hebrews says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock in the field, on your horses, donkeys, and camels, and on your cattle, sheep, and goats. Number six, boils. Boils. Chapter 9, verse 8 to 9. Two verses. Chapter 9, verse 8 to 9. The sixth plague. Then the Lord said to Moses again, Take handfuls of soot from a furnace and have Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt, and festering boils will break out on people and animals throughout the land. Everybody will have boils over your body. Number seven, thunderstorm of hail and fire. And I want to read from verse, chapter 9, verses 18 and 19. Thunderstorm of hail and fire. Verse 18, therefore at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt. From the day it was founded till now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter. Because the hail will fall on every person and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field. And they will die. The eighth plague is the locusts. Chapter 10, I'll read from verse 3 to 6. Moses and Aaron again went to Pharaoh and said, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will bring locusts into your country tomorrow. They will cover the face of the ground so that it cannot be seen. They will devour what little you have left after the hail, including every tree that is growing in your fields. They will fill your houses and those of all your officials and all the Egyptians, something neither your parents nor your ancestors have ever seen from the day they settled in this land till now. And then... Number ninth, the ninth plague, 
and that is darkness for three days. Darkness for three days. And that is in chapter 10, verses 21 to 23. The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the sky, so that darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky, and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they live. Isn't it strange? Isn't it God can send darkness on one area and just particularly where Israelites were, they have lights. And then the last plague is the death of firstborn. The death of firstborn. If you look at the, and I'll leave it uh, for Pastor Caroline next week. If you look at the nine plagues, there are three sets of three. Uh, many people have uh, divided into three sets of three. And if you look at the three sets of trees, uh, it, it covers the three areas, water, land, and sky. God calls out literally His heavenly army, navy, and air force. Uh, it also says that out of the uh, three sets of three, the first two warning, for the first two there are warning, but the third one has no warning. And so one, two, there's warning, and then the third plague there's no warning. Fourth and fifth there's warning. The sixth plague there's no warning. Seventh and eighth there's warning, and then the ninth there's no warning. Uh, and and there are many ways that people will explain the ten plagues. And this morning, what I want to do is to uh, give you four explanation. And it is the fourth one that I want to zoom in and expand on it a little bit more. The first explanation that people had is natural explanation. Now, the natural explanation is uh, for people who have no miraculous kind of thing in their worldview, that everything can be explained scientifically. What you can see, what you can feel, nothing is beyond that. And uh, they, they try to explain away this phenomenal account of the ten plagues in Exodus. And natural explanation of the ten plagues, basically they say this, it is an ecological domino effect. Ecological domino effect. One lead to another. And out of this natural uh, uh, explanation, uh, they, they have two explanations. One is the volcanic eruption. Uh, they believe that the theory argues that the plagues were really the fallout of volcanic eruption on the island of Santorini in the south of Greece. And the winds would have carried the volcanic ash to Egypt at some point over the summer, and the toxic acids in the volcanic ash would have included the mineral called cinnabar, and which would have been capable of turning a river a blood-light red colour. And then the accumulated acidity in the water would have caused frogs to leap out and search for clean waters. And insects would have borrowed eggs in the bodies of dead animals and human survivors which generated larvae and then adult insects. And then the, the volcanic ash in the atmosphere would have affected the weather with acid rain landing on people's skin which in turn caused boils 
and the grass would have been contaminated, poisoning the animal that ate it. The humidity from the rain and the subsequent hail would have created optimal condition for locusts to thrive. And then volcanic eruptions could also explain the several days of darkness, which means nine plagues were accounted for. And so basically what they are saying is that a massive volcanic fallout would provide the simplest and most plausible scientific explanation for this contamination. So it's a natural explanation. There's nothing miraculous about that plague at all. It can be all uh, explained using science and natural kind of means. And then there's another theory called the red algae. You can, you can read about that. Uh, it, it's relatively new, came about maybe in, in 1996 uh, uh, in an article in New York Times. It argued that the red algae could have sucked oxygen out of Egypt's waterways, killed the fish and turned the water red, and then one lead to, to another. And so the first explanation of these ten, ten, uh, plagues uh, of Egypt, uh, uh, one of the explanations is natural explanation to it, uh, which, of course, uh, is, can be easily um, dismissed by many biblical scholars on the grounds that their pattern, their timing, the rapid succession, and above all, controlled by Moses. Mark them as supernatural. Uh, second explanation that has been put forth over the years, which is very uh, uh, attractive, is the traditional explanation. And that the ten plagues, I mean, Egypt is not like uh, a Western nation. It is a polytheistic culture in the sense that they believe in many, many gods, much like many Asian countries, whether it's in India or, or even in Malaysia, some Chinese religion. We, we, we believe in many, many gods. Everything that's God is God of heaven, God of earth, and God of the water, and, and God of business. And therefore, you go to some Chinese restaurant, you see a statue, uh, idols there, because they worship the business God to, to bless them, to prosper their business. And it's very common. So, so what this view is saying, that ten plagues represent ten Egyptian gods or goddesses. And so each plague is an exposure of a false uh, Egyptian god. Or some say attack against, attacks against the Egyptian pantheon. Multiple gods. So each of the ten plagues represent one of the many gods of ancient Egypt showing the, so the superiority of the Hebrew God to the pagan God. God defeat all these gods to prove His superiority over the world, in a sense. And so they were God's battle with, with gods of Egypt. Each plague was directed against a particular God in Egypt. Each one is a God, and God overcome that and defeat all these gods to prove his superiority uh, and proclaim himself as the real, the ultimate God. And that is in uh, uh, Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, indicate this as well. It says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am 
the Lord. And so the traditional explanation is each God represents something, you know, uh, not each so each thing, like for example, uh, Hapi, I think Pastor Bruce briefly mentioned a few. Hapi was the Egyptian God of the now, and, and God, when, when changed the water, it uh, into blood, defeated their, their god in that sense. And then plague number two is the Egyptian goddess of fertility, and then the Egyptian god of the earth, and therefore uh, the, the god sends lies from the dust of the earth, defeating them. And then plague number nine uh, is the sun god, as we call it, Ra, and, and, and three days of complete darkness is a defeat to this particular god. Uh, again, I don't find this very satisfying in many sense because some, some of them doesn't quite fit in. Of course, in the, in the polytheistic culture, you can find some minor player God to fit into, into this. But there are hundreds, hundreds of gods uh, in, in Egypt. I, I don't find that, that the template really uh, is what God is doing. Maybe generally, yes, but you can't specifically fill it in that way. And the third explanation, uh, I, I just put it contemporary explanation. Uh, this thought has been put forth, it's quite attractive, it's quite uh, 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 clever in a sense. Uh, uh, while the second plague, the traditional uh, explanation, the beneficiary of the plague then is the Egyptian people. It's to prove to, to Egyptian that Yahweh, the Hebrew God, is a real Real God, defeating all these gods. What is the third explanation, the contemporary explanation, and the beneficiary is not just the Egyptian, but Israelites. Uh, the, this person who profoundly uh, bring forth this particular thought is that the purpose of the ten plagues is not for the Egyptian. The purpose of the plague actually is for the Jewish people. They have been enslaved for many years, 400 years. Uh, they, they need to know God. They need to want to live with Moses. And so, what they do is, what this person put forth the theory, rabbi, uh, uh, rabbi, uh, uh, rabbi put forth this theory, he says, you look at the Genesis account, if you read Genesis chapter 1, there are 10 utterances of God. And God said, let there be light. And God said, da-da-da-da. And God said, da-da-da-da. Ten times in Genesis chapter 1, uh, God speaks into creation about things. And so this rabbi is suggesting that the ten plagues, it is, God is using the ten plagues to undo creation so as to establish that He is the God of creation. Undo creation. If God can create, now what He's going to do is He's going to undo all the things that He has created to tell the, the Israelite that He is really the God of Creator. And so what ignited the faith of the Israelites was not their physical redemption from Egypt, but rather the mighty act which the Lord had done in Egypt. And that is the plagues. And for example, for example, right, uh, day one, is light. So God undo the creation by sending darkness. Uh, day four, sun, moon, and stars, and, and, and the place undo it by, by uh, um, sending nets, 
water to blood, flies, livestock, frogs, you know, all, all these things correspond, not exactly fitting in that order, but the point of the matter is that God undo what He has created. And so, for example, uh, uh, blood, the first plague, uh, God, it was associated with water, the lies with earth, and the flies, and, and God created in verse 10, God called the dry land earth, and the gatherings of waters he called sea. And then pestilence, the plague of pestilence affects animal. And uh, Genesis chapter 2, the animals were created specifically for man, and he undo that by striking the animals with pestilence. And then hail and loc locusts, plague 7 and 8. And then in Genesis chapter 1 verse 12, the land brought forth vegetation, seed-bearing fruit with seed in it. So you can see that God is undoing the creation and darkness, whereas first verse in the first creation, let there be light. And then death of the firstborn of the ten plague, and it corresponds with verse 26 of chapter 1, let us create a man in our image. And so what the author is basically proposing is that the Lord of creation is Israel's redeemer from Egypt. So at the end of, at the end of this narrative, uh, Israel looks back over the still water of the sea at a land with no people, no animal, no vegetation, a land in which creation had been undone. Israel is convinced that its Redeemer is really the Lord of all creation. So basically, He who had just reduced order to chaos in the ten plagues was the same as He who had previously ordered that which had once been unformed and void. So the template, God is undoing the creation that He had done to prove to the Jewish people, the Israelites, that God is the God of Creator. You can be trusted in the sense He will deliver you. So the first explanation is the natural explanation. Second one is a traditionally... Uh, uh, interpreted as benefiting the Egyptian. And the third explanation is what I call the contemporary explanation. The beneficiary is really the Jewish people. Let me just now come in my uh, fourth point, which I want to expand a little bit more. Uh, I will put it biblical explanation. This is not suggesting that uh, second and third, they are, they are not using the Bible, but I'm just putting it all together. And under this biblical explanation, I want to give you three points. I want to mention three things about uh, this plague. The first one is that the plagues were miraculous. Miraculous. The plagues were miracles. They were not natural events. And it's not, not red color like blood. The Bible says blood. They were miracles performed by God at a specific time, in a specific place, and for a specific purpose. If you are a believer, you must believe in miracles. From the first chapter of Genesis right down to Revelation chapter 22, there are 66 books of the Bible that are loaded with miracles. Whether it's delivering the people out of Egypt to entering the promised land, defeating the the uh, enemies, raising up judges uh, to govern them and, and cycle, they go through cycle and cycle of defeat and God, they cry out to God, God send a judge again 
and then they live for a couple of hundred of years and then they sin again and the cycles goes on in the book of Judges until a uh, king came along and the prophets, Daniel, God preserved the remnant and all his prophecies of 400 slavery and God raised up Moses to deliver down to exile for 70 years and to the time of Christ's coming in the New Testament, they are loaded with miracles. God is a God who can create and make miracles. If He can create, He can order the natural law to suit Him as well. The, the differing point is more of whether God chose to perform miracles sometimes. Sometimes He suspends. Sometimes by not performing certain miracles, it further His will on earth. And so miracles, this, the plagues were miraculous. There's no doubt of it. Uh, as a believer. They were miracles performed by God at a specific time, in a specific place, for a specific purpose. And so the first thing I want to mention is that plagues were miraculous. The second thing I want to mention about the plagues, the plagues were meaningful. Not just only that it is miraculous, it is meaningful. Uh, the purpose of the plagues spell out in Scripture for two things, to teach the Egyptians. To teach the Egyptians, which is the traditional view that I just presented to you. No doubt about it. In, in uh, chapter 7, verse 4 to 5 of Exodus, God says that. God says in chapter 7, verse 4 to 5, I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring up my divisions, my people, the Israelites. Why? And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. So, the, so the, one of the reasons of the template is that the Egyptians may recognize this Almighty God. And then in chapter 14, verse 4, it also tells us that the, that the purpose of the plague is to teach the Egyptians. Chapter 14, verse 4, But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Again, the purpose of the play is to teach the Egyptians, to point the Egyptians to this Almighty God and not Pharaoh, which is they believe that is their God. And there's another reason the purpose is not just only to teach the Egyptians, but it's also to teach the Israelites, which of course is a it's the third view, the contemporary view that I want to uh, 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 mention that is to show it to the Israelites. The true beneficiaries, in a sense, it will be the Israelites. And that is in chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. Look at chapter 10, 1 and 2. Uh, this is what, uh, again, the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them so that you may know that I am the Lord. So not just only for Egyptians that they know that God, the Jewish people, the Israelites know that this is the God who made it possible. In Exodus chapter 14, verse 31 again, uh, to further this view that is to teach the Israelites. Look at verse 31 in chapter 14. 
after they exit, they cross the Red Sea. And verse 31 says, And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they put their trust in Him and in Moses, His servant. And so, so the plagues, uh, it, it is meaningful. They were very meaningful in the sense that the plague were for the, both Egyptians and for the Jewish people. The Egyptians need to recognize God and the Israelites need to put their faith in their God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and follow the instruction of Moses and move on. Bearing in mind, it's important because they have been enslaved for 400 years. 400 years is a very long time. And the lesson that God wants to teach the uh, Egypt and, and Israel is the same. He wants both of them to know that He is the Lord and there is no other. In Israel's case, this lesson through the place resulted in their deliverance. For Egypt, it led to judgment. And for Pharaoh, it led to death. So the God of the universe has no rivals. And he must be obeyed because he is God. He is full of love and mercy and grace and redemption. But he exclusively is full of all these good things. And any attempt to get this thing from anything else is not only foolish, but it is dangerous. And for us human beings, the point of application is that we human beings set up false gods or idols in an attempt to control their lives. They set up their counterfeit gods in order to give themselves what they want. But loving, trusting, and obeying these false gods never works. The false gods become self-destructive. The idol of your heart always turns on you. What you thought you were controlling begins to control you. Your gods become the means of your own destruction. This is what happened to Egypt, and it is what will happen to any of us when we pursue counterfeit gods. Timothy Keller, uh, uh, sorry, uh, before I mention Timothy Keller, Henry Nouwen uh, wrote a book called Wounded Healer. What a beautiful title called Wounded Healer. Why? Because you can use your wound to heal others. That is the, the, the line of his thesis. That is, you can use your wounds to heal others. Others. Why? Because you never get to a person's soul until you understand their hurts. And in the book, The Wounded Healer, healer he, he, he tells the story of, of the danger of creating your own idol. And uh, he retells this story from an ancient India. He said, There are four royal brothers decided each to master a special ability. Uh, time went by, and the brothers met to reveal what they had learned. Uh, the first one said, I have mastered a science by which I can take but a bone of some creature, if we can find some bones of some creature, and I can create flesh that goes with it. I have this ability. And the second one said, I know how to grow that creature's skin and hair if there is flesh on its bones. And then the third said, well, I am able to create its limbs if I have flesh, the skin and the hair. And I, concluded the fourth one, know how to give life to that creature if its, from, if its form is complete. Thereupon, the brothers went into the jungle to find a bone so they could demonstrate their specialties. And as fate would have it, the bone they found was a lion's bone. 
Uh, so the first one added flesh to the bone, and the second grew skin and hair, and the third completed it with matching limbs, and the fourth gave the lion life. Shaking its mane, the ferocious beast arose and jumped on his creators. He killed them all and vanished contentedly into the jungle. And so basically the story is trying to bring across that we too have the capacity to create what can devour us. Goals and dreams can consume us. Possessions and property can turn and destroy us. And unless we first seek God's kingdom and righteousness, put things in perspective and allow Him to breathe into what we make of life. And so all these false gods that we have created will come back to destroy us. And Timothy Keller, uh, who is uh, touted as a 21st century C.S. Lewis, a great apologies as well. Uh, pray for him as he's suffering from pancreatic cancer um, now. Uh, probably you, you don't think of yourself as an idol worshipper, uh, but that is because your definition of idol is far too narrow. In one of the books that Timothy Keller wrote uh, called Counterfeit Gods, excellent book, you get a chance, Counterfeit Gods, and he helps us to expand our understanding of idolatry. And this is what he said. Let me just read a few sentences to you. He said, what is an idol? He said, it is, an, it is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living at all. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I felt my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something. But perhaps, he says, the best one is worship. So an idol is something or anything more important to you than God that consume your mind all the time. So, uh, if there's any meaningful point of this plague, is that God is establishing that He is the true God. Not just really to the Egyptian, to Israelite, to each one of us to pursue this real God. And my final point that I want to bring to you under the biblical explanation, not just only the plagues uh, were uh, miraculous or meaningful, I believe the key part of it, the plagues reveal the mercy of God. It reveals the mercy of God. Did you know that four times, four times, four occasions, Pharaoh actually professed repentance. Read through this this afternoon again. Four times Pharaoh actually said, "I have sinned. You know, I've sinned. I've sinned. I've sinned." He asked God to forgive me. You know, four times. Twice he said, "I have sinned." And uh, 
in the fourth plate, he said, go and offer sacrifice to your God. All right, all right, go. You go and sacrifice. Pray for me in verse 28 of chapter 8. He said, go and sacrifice uh, to your God. Pray for me. And then on the seventh plate again, he said, I've sinned. On the eighth plate, he said, okay, okay, you, you, you go and, and worship, but not with your family and livestock. Uh, I have sinned. And then the ninth plate, he said, Go worship the Lord with your family, but leave your stock behind. You know, almost like negotiating with Moses. All right, I give you a little bit more. I let you go to worship. And he said, Moses said, No, okay, it's the second time around. I let you and bring your family with you. He said, No, everything. Four times. Pharaoh was contrite in his speech, he was cunning in his mind, and he was callous in his heart. And did you know that if you read through the, the, the ten plagues, this phrase keeps appearing. God hardens Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh's hardened his own heart. Ten times, but six times it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Four times it says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. So six times Pharaoh hardened his own heart, four times God hardens Pharaoh's heart. The first five plagues, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. The first five. And then the sixth plague, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And then the seventh plague, it revert back to Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And then God finished with it, eight, nine, and ten. God hardened his, own, his heart. So first five and seven, Pharaoh's hardened his own heart. Six, eight, nine, ten. Four times, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. You know, in Romans chapter 9, uh, Paul actually brings this event up. And he says this. Paul says that God has the perfect right to do with anybody what He wishes. So if you were to think, well, if God is the one that hardens Pharaoh's heart, then you can hardly blame Pharaoh, isn't it? Or if Judas has been chosen to betray Jesus, how can you, you, you blame Judas in a sense? Uh, uh, even if you go down on that line of argument, Paul says in Romans chapter 9 that God has the perfect right to do with anybody what He wishes. After all, He is the porter and we are His clay. If God chooses to harden Pharaoh's heart, he has the prerogative as he is the creator. That was what Paul was trying to say in Romans chapter 9. Because why? Paul says none of us deserve his mercy anyway. None of us deserve his mercy. Some he chooses to use it. Now listen to this. Some he would use it to manifest his grace, his mercy, his love. Some he would use it to manifest his justice. So God can use us to either manifest His grace and His mercy through us or He can use us to manifest His judgment and justice through us. And in the instance of Pharaoh, he had hardened his heart too many times. For the first five plagues, he hardened his heart. God gave him opportunity to repent and to submit but he chooses to harden his own heart. And then God says to Pharaoh, as a punishment for you now, I will harden your heart. I will harden your heart. 
So after Pharaoh has hardened his heart, God says, I will now harden your heart. You won't come to me, so I can only use you to demonstrate my power and not my mercy. I would have used you to demonstrate my mercy right now. And now you have gone too far. I can only use you to manifest my judgment in your life. I wanted very much to demonstrate my mercy, grace in you. But you have hardened your heart so many times. Now I can only manifest through you my judgment and my justice. God never forced Pharaoh to resist against his will. Having demonstrated his own obstinacy and desire to resist, God simply strengthened him that he might continue his resistance until God's purposes were fulfilled. God would love to manifest his mercy in the life through Pharaoh. But he had hardened his heart too many times that God said, well, it's time now that I will manifest my justice, my punishment through you. And that is a scripture text in the book of Hebrews. Many times it appears that today, if you hear his voice, today, if you have hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your heart while you still have time. Because a time will come when God will take over and will harden your heart instead so as to demonstrate his justice and not mercy while you still have time. Let me close with this. You know, I grew up uh, in a Presbyterian church. And so I, uh, in the days before, they, they used projector and slides and all that. We always carry a tiny little hymn of faith, you know. There are a few, maybe 1,000 hymns in this tiny little, no, no musical note, just only the lyrics. And one of the hymns that we often sing is, of course, a famous hymn by Charles Wesley and Can, and can It Be? And Can It Be? Um, let me just read one of the stanzas. The verse says this, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thy eye diffuse a quickling ray. I walk the dungeon flame with light. And then the famous verse says, My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, I went forth, and I followed thee. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, I went forth, and followed me, thee. And then the chorus, the amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? May you not harden your heart if you are watching here this morning. May you not harden your heart 
come to Him, soften your heart, uh, come before Him, bow your heads, and surrender your heart to Jesus. And then you rose, you went forth, and you follow Jesus. Let's pray, shall we? Thank you, Lord. The living God uh, who revealed Himself both at Mount Sinai and on the cross is the only Lord who, if you find Him, can truly fulfill you, and if you fail Him, can truly forgive you. Father, we thank You for uh, Your Word. Thank You for the plagues. It is miraculous. It is meaningful because you display yourself as Almighty God and also it displays the mercy of God. Thank you, Lord. I pray that someone here this morning will not harden their hearts. They will bow their heads, bend their knees and give their heart to Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We bless you. We worship you. You are a good God. And we truly experience you. Our chains will fall off. Our heart will be set free. We will rise up. We will go forth. And we will follow you. And experience the fullness of life that you want to give to us. Thank you, Lord. May the peace of God be in your heart. May the grace of God be in your words. May the love of God be in your hands. And may the joy of God be in your soul and in the song that your life sings. May this God, Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen.